So empathy and mirroring is not something that just happens to us. It's something that we can actually uh, turn on and off to a certain degree. And we know that in general, when we have someone in front of us that we feel is more like us, mm. we will be more inclined to actually turn our empathy on. Whereas if we feel that the person is very different from us, we're more likely to turn it off. Welcome to Brain Observations, the podcast where we are curious about how the brain and the mind works and how you can use this knowledge to change your experience of life. Me, I'm Maria Sandel, and with this podcast, I hope to make scientific evidence on well-being and brain health more easily available. I am a medical doctor, however, the information in this podcast is meant to educate and inspire and should not be taken as medical advice. Today's guest, Professor Christian Kaisers, runs the Social Brain Lab at the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience in collaboration with Associate Professor Valeria Gazzola. He has an educational background in psychology and biology and a PhD in neuroscience. He was part of the team in Italy where something called mirror neurons were first discovered and he's passionate about finding out what makes us social. In his lab they study how the neurons involved in our own actions, sensations and emotions come to play to let us share and predict the actions, sensations and emotions of others. He is the author of the book The Empathic Brain, explaining how the science of mirror neurons has changed our understanding of human nature. So welcome to Brain Observations Podcast. I'm really honored to have you here and I am super excited to get to meet you in person because everything has been very much online for uh, the last few years. Absolutely, it's nice to be here. So it's really, really cool. I read your book, by the way. I adored it. Thank you. You're a really good writer. Thank you. I must say, because you took something very complex, a lot of brain regions and cells and things, and you and you made it easy to read and enjoyable to read because it, you could see daily life in it. It wasn't just medical terms or research, scientific things. It was really, really understandable, which I think is very well done. And I also I love this the the story of your your journey through research, just in pursuit of the things that you found interesting. So you really seem to have great passion for what you do, which I think is uh, admirable as well. And you played quite a big role in the achievements around something called mirror neurons that, at least a few years ago, people talked quite a lot about it. But I don't know if everybody really understands what it is. So if you could tell us a little bit about mirror neurons and what you've found. Okay, so... Before the discovery of mirror neurons, our idea of how the brain allows us to understand what goes on in others was based on the idea that you you see what other people do, their facial expression, their actions, then you somehow think about it, like you would think perhaps about the situation at chess, and you would come up with a good explanation of why the other person might act that way, and it's that thinking that would then lead you to decide what to do. Mm. With mirror neurons, what really changed is that we discovered for the first time that observing the actions of others is not just an act of seeing and of thinking, but it is an act of feeling as well. We could see, in that case in monkeys, that seeing the actions of someone else was processed in the brain by mapping them onto your own actions. So with a system like that, if you would see me take this little bottle of water and drink from it, 
Mm. Nice. Refreshing. <laughs> exactly. You wouldn't only see me doing it, but you would activate the same neurons that you would normally use to drink water yourself. So they're firing right now. Exactly. They're recognizing the action. And that means that uh, for you now, my drinking is no longer just an abstract thing out there in the world. But it is something that you know, something that you can share, something that you could do as well. And by seeing that we basically map the bodies of others onto our own body, really change the way that neuroscience could contribute to the whole discussion of how we understand other people, because it allowed us to really look in the brain and see that we understand others through a phenomenon that we normally call empathy, which is the fact that we really feel ourselves into the other and we put ourselves in their stead and really bodily feel as well what goes on in them. And so these mirror neurons are selectively in certain areas of the brain or are they spread all over? So originally we discovered them in the motor cortex, uh, specifically the premotor cortex. So that's a part of the brain that's normally involved, like I was saying, in performing your own actions. So if uh, you stimulate that part of the brain, what you see is that the monkey would start to do things. Now, there was the initial discovery, and there you saw that some of these neurons involved in the monkey's own actions would become active again, where the monkey simply saw me perform similar actions. Afterwards, we we and others saw similar phenomena, first in humans, where you then use uh, fMRI, a method to to measure where you have brain activity during a certain task. And we saw that there's a whole number of regions that are active both when you do something and when you watch others do it. That includes the motor cortex that we had seen in the monkeys, so the premotor cortex in particular, but also areas like the somatosensory cortex that normally allows you to feel things on your own skin, as well as in the emotional brain regions like the insula or the cingulate that are normally associated with you feeling emotions like disgust or pain. So we see that a number of brain systems have this propensity to become reactivated while you witness similar things in others. So if I see touch in you, I activate the brain region normally involved in my own touch. If I see you being in pain, I will activate region involved normally in my own pain. And if I see you perform an action like drinking from a glass, I'll activate brain regions that are involved in my own actions. And That means that we have a number of systems that uh, become, so to speak, hijacked by what others do and allow us to no longer just see what they do, but feel really what goes on in them as well. But it is not the case that your entire brain acts in the same way when you do or feel and when others do or feel. We have higher brain areas that are common to the self and others, and we have lower brain areas that are more specific for the self. And uh, that, of course, allows us not to be confused, uh, whether it's us feeling something or someone else feeling something. And it allows us as well, for instance, to not be imitating what other people do all the time if we don't want to. 
For infants, it, it takes a while for them to understand that they are separate from their mother or their caregiver, right? They're still a bit confused about who they are and who others are. That is correct. So uh, that uh, speaks to an interesting uh, point, actually. When we speak about uh, empathy and feeling what other people feel, in common language, we mean many different things. Uh, in psychology, you distinguish different flavors to that. There is something quite simple called emotional contagion, which means that if I'm panicking right now, you will start to feel distressed as well. That doesn't involve you really being fully aware of the fact that your distress is now not really yours, but something that comes from me. It just requires that emotions can go from one person to the other like a virus can. That is something that you observe very early in children as well. And that doesn't necessarily require the ability to cognitively understand what is you and what is someone else. Because the moment that you're distressed, you are really distressed. It's just that you, as an adult, you start to be able to attribute this altered state in the self to the presence of me here, for instance, becoming really nervous. Mm. So that is probably the stage that children uh, don't necessarily yet have and that uh, a lot of animals perhaps don't have as well. So they have the contagion of emotion, the fact that we we get uh, a bit more cheerful around cheerful people and more nervous around nervous people. But they probably do not yet have the fully developed ability to really represent the cause of these uh, shared feelings. Do they have more mirror neurons? Do we have more when we are born and then we prune them over the course of development as we do with other nerve cells? Well, so, so you have to realize that what makes a mirror neuron is not the fact that it's a, a special type of neurons per se. What makes uh, mirror neurons special is that they have connections with the uh, neurons both involved in uh, triggering our own states and from neurons in the visual and auditory system that can map similar states from others onto them. Mm. So our uh, belief is actually that mirror neurons need to develop through life. They need to wire up mm. these matching self in other states. And so we know, for instance, that if you get to experience certain states, you become better at empathizing with those states in others. Mm. So if you have, for instance, never played the piano and I play you a piano tune, you will only activate auditory cortices, so in the areas involved in hearing. But I can give you three hours of lesson to play a particular piece of piano and afterwards, if you hear someone else play that same piece, you will start to activate your hand motor cortex as if you were playing it uh, yourself. And what we think is happening is that while you're having this piano lesson where you press the keys and you hear the way that they sound, your brain can associate your finger movements with what they sound like on the piano. And once you have built these associations, mm. now if you hear someone else produce the same sounds, your brain through these Habian associations between what it heard and what it did when, when the person was doing it itself, can now trigger the motor state simply by having heard someone else play the matching tune. 
So for certain things, we know that they really develop through self-experience, and therefore the adult would have more of them than the child has. But of course, that doesn't exclude that perhaps certain uh, connections may be prepared really by evolution, and it might be, for instance, that for a child hearing other babies cry might be uh, pre-wired by evolution to, to create some distress. So if you play basketball yourself, then you may enjoy watching a game more. And that would then not only be because you kind of understand what they're doing, you have an intellectual appreciation of the game, but you actually feel the game in a different way than somebody who has never played. Precisely. There are actually studies exactly on that, where you see uh, people trying to to throw a ball into the basket. And you can measure that uh, a professional basketball player... If the ball, for instance, isn't quite going to make it uh, into the basket, you can measure little twitches in their hand as if they were trying to correct the movement (laughs) themselves. Wow. So, and that is something that, that on the other hand, um, basketball commentators that also have a lot of expertise, but not um, the the same kind of first-hand bodily experience of it, will not have. They'll also be quite good at uh, guessing whether it's going to make it or not, but they don't have this embodied uh, physical playing with the the other. So is it easier for us then to feel with someone who has a similar life experience? If we're an anxious person or we've struggled with anxiety, it's easier to empathize with someone who also struggles with anxiety. Absolutely. So that's true in two ways. So it's true, first of all, because... We, we have more complete representations that we can use to mirror the state of the other. And second as well, because in general there is a, a certain... So empathy and mirroring is not something that just happens to us. It's something that we can actually uh, turn on and off to a certain degree. And we know that in general, when we have someone in front of us that we feel is more like us, Mm. we will be more inclined to actually turn our empathy on. Whereas if we feel that the person is very different from us, we're more likely to turn it off. So, but how do we turn on and off our empathy? Is this something that we can do consciously or is it something that happens unconsciously but based on this in-group, out-group bias? Both. So, so there's, a, there's an, an increasing number of studies that have really looked in the brain at what happens in these situations. So some of the earliest studies have looked at this in-group, out-group difference. So there we see that if I just tell you that someone that likes the same football team as you do is in pain, you will activate your own pain more. Then if I tell you that someone that likes the opposing team is in pain right now. There's also studies that show that uh, if you feel responsible for someone's pain, you'll have it more on than, than if you think that it's not your fault. But we've also done experiments in which we simply show people a Hollywood movie and they have to watch it under two different conditions. In one condition, we tell them to take a detached view of the movie Mm -hmm. and simply to tell us from second to second how the main actor feels, but from this kind of more detached point of view. In another condition, they have the exact same task, but now we ask them to do it by really empathizing with Mm -hmm. the actor and feeling what the actor feels. 
what we see is that they're very accurate under both conditions. So it's not like they simply turn off their attention. They can do it in both conditions. But in the condition where we just tell them to try and be empathic, they recruit a lot more of these brain regions involved in their own feelings and actions and, and sensations, which shows us that we really have deliberate control over this. In addition to having these situational factors under which we habitually turn it on and off. But is it more that we can turn it on or we can, we can choose to really try to create empathy? Or can we actually decrease it as well from some form of neutral baseline that I go like, yeah, now I'm really not going to feel for this guy. Exactly. All of the above. So I think you, know, you can really imagine what happens sometimes when, when say you, you, you know you're going to have a difficult meeting at work. And um, it can be, for instance, that uh, you, you have to fire someone. Under that condition, you will get into the meeting probably turning your empathy down because you know you have to fire that person. And mm. if you allow your empathy to be on, yeah. you're going to suffer and you might not even be able to do what you have to do. So there's a, several mechanisms through which we then turn down our empathy. So one of them is convincing ourselves that we're not really responsible. Mm. That either, well, it's the financial situation of the company, you just have to relay the bad news. Or perhaps you can say it's that person's fault. If she would have worked a bit harder, mm. we, we wouldn't be here today. Other ways that we can do is by directing our attention to some things or others. For instance, if the person starts to, to cry, for instance, we can just look away yeah. and not be exposed to the tears. Or we can, of course, drive the discussion as well away from more emotional parts or not. At another moment, we might go to a date instead of going to that meeting. And we know that uh, to, to engage a, a positive relationship with the person, we really turn our empathy on. We will try to, to drive the meeting towards, mm. uh, uh, towards more emotional aspects. And we really open our heart as well to what the other person feels. To achieve more human connection, to find exactly. similarities, and to, to try to find positive ways of reinforcing the connection. Then. Exactly. To really work on, on what is sometimes called the rapport, which is this uh, thing that can bind us together. That's something that good doctors know really how to do because there's a lot of evidence that if a patient feels really heard and empathized with, mm. the outcomes are generally better. So a good doctor knows to, to open uh, his heart to the patient. But it's something that uh, some doctors don't do because they just um, uh, think it, it's too challenging for their own emotions. It can lead to, to empathic it. distress. When it becomes overwhelming and you can't really deal with, with the emotions, it becomes too intense, right? Exactly. So that's, I think, where once we realize really that uh, empathy is a choice, something that we can turn up and down, then I think we can develop a certain degree of uh, empathic wisdom where we learn the certain situation where empathy is super important. And in those situations, we should really turn it on. Mm. And then uh, if we feel that it becomes too distressing, then we should choose perhaps moments where empathy is not so important mm. to, to turn it off and, uh, and to recuperate a bit. 
I think something that tends to stumble us up a bit is when you're angry with someone, it's really hard to feel empathy, even though that is likely a situation where it would be really good. Let's say you're in a, some form of social relationship with someone and you end up in a negative spiral and you start feeling less and less similar and you start being more and more angry with each other. And that is usually a situation where it would be very useful to really try and empathize with the other person and find similarities again. But when you feel angry, it's like you go like, I don't want to. We just get stuck there. Yes, exactly. I think what you would, it's something we've all felt, right? Even with the people closest to us, we sometimes get into this negative spiral where the person said something, makes us angry, and we don't really want to hear the excuses at that moment. But I think you point to, to exactly the, the right thing is that we do know consciously that this is the moment where we actually should open our hearts mm. and, and, and let the emotions of the other come to us. We need to try and remember the fact that the other person actually likes us, loves us, is a person like us. Mm. And then as we grow older, I hope that we, we can develop a bit of this uh, wisdom and mindfulness to then really just take a breath before we, we answer something that we don't really want to say and just uh, try to think about whether it wouldn't be a good way out to, to actually open up a bit to the other and, and realize that perhaps they didn't mean it um, to, to be hurtful. Well, how do you think we can work on getting out of that high emotional state where we're angry to... Because it feels like you need to come down from that a bit before you can take in the other person's emotions and take that into account, but we're so wired up that we're stuck there. Do you have any ideas on what we could do to get into that state? Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, um, cognitive strategies are like everything else. Uh, You need to develop certain habits for these difficult situations to be manageable. So I think what uh, what really helps for myself is actually after situations that didn't go very well, to take the time to, to reflect a bit on the point where it went wrong, the point where I should have just stopped, taken a deep breath, mm. and, and, and reconsidered. And uh, when I do that reevaluation afterwards, uh, I find it quite helpful when I then see that a similar situation happens mm. again. I have a little alarm bell going on in me saying, do you remember? (laughs) I've seen this before, it didn't go well. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think also then uh, speaking with the partner with whom it did go that way, Mm. about uh, how it went that way and how you could avoid that it goes uh, wrong again, I think is a good way to a certain degree repair the situation and try to work together on avoiding to, to go into that spiral. Because very often these spirals, like you say, are really a dynamic, right? Mm. It's not that it's one person's fault or the other ones. It's really both of them just allowing the situation to go down and down. And I think if you reflect about it together, you, you have then the next time two people that can uh, just lift the finger and sing, weren't we in the same situation <laughs> <laughs> before? It seems as though if you go from emotional contagion all the way through to empathic concern, that it's, it's easy that you end up in these spirals. Because if one person is angry or disconnected or 
or anxious, that mirrors over to the other person that starts associating more anxiety with the first person. And then maybe that changes their behavior, which will mirror more anxiety in the first person. And, and, and then you go and you find less and less similarities. Maybe you start becoming angry with the person. You start seeing the things that differ between you uh, instead of seeing the things that are that are similar between you. And, and then it's just a reinforcing loop that you're stuck in. Yes. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you. So I'm excited about uh, emotional contagion because I think it gives us an amazing intuitive bond with what goes on in other people, something that we see already in animals, something that's really ancient and powerful. But I by no means think that uh, you should allow emotional contagion alone to govern your social relationships for exactly... <laughs> what you were saying. Uh, yeah. It is something that, like every emotion, is powerful, incredibly useful, but is best regulated carefully. And I think just like we need to, to be intelligent about all other emotions we have, we need to be intelligent about uh, emotional contagion. It's a bond, but one that we need to embed in, in our kind of intelligence, in our way to, to regulate things. It's one of the many skills that you need to, to be happy in your life. And regulating it, knowing when it starts to go in the wrong direction is really important. And as well, catching yourself when you think that um, empathy brings you in a direction that you don't like ethically, for instance, as well, is something that you need to do. So. Empathy has a lot of biases, the, the fact that you're, like we said, you're more empathic towards people that you perceive as more similar. And also empathy is not very good at numbers. So if you know that one person is in distress or you know that a thousand people are in distress, the second emotion is not 1,000 times stronger than the first. Mm. So if you have to make decisions where you have to decide, for instance, whether you do something that is good for one person versus something that's good for a thousand uh, people. Empathy by itself will not necessarily help you strike the best balance, the one that uh, leads to the most good in the world. And those are cases as well where empathy is good because it alerts you to the fact that someone is in distress, kind of really moves you, but use it wisely and think about whether it leads you always in the right direction. Do we have the same foundational ability for empathy and then we can increase or decrease that over time, over our life course, as we can build a skill by training empathy, by becoming more aware, becoming more emotional literate maybe? Um, or can we decrease it through coping mechanism? Is it, is it fluid? How, how much can we affect it by ourselves over time? Yeah, so it's extremely fluid, actually. There's a, a lot of evidence. So, for instance, people have followed doctors during their training, and they've seen that when they come in, they're a lot more empathic than when they come out. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is not necessarily what we want, but that's a nicely documented example of how training can really modulate that. Do you think that's a coping mechanism? Absolutely. That Absolutely. You, you're exposed to so much that you need to start distancing? Well, I don't know whether you need to distance, but, but it is tempting to. Uh, to, uh, to distance. Because I think um, 
Nowadays, a lot of doctors have to see a patient um, in a 10-minute kind of rhythm. Mm. Uh, they, uh, they judge by their productivity. The waiting room is full. Mm. Um, and that is not the ideal situation to, to just figure, I'm completely going to open my heart to mm. this patient, and each patient is unique mm. and really worthy of my compassion. So... I fully understand why once you get into a production kind of mindset, you you will turn down a bit the emotional side and try to just focus on the symptoms and the protocol of how you should cure it. Mm. But of course, I don't think that that is the best thing for the patient. And therefore, I don't think that it is necessarily and ultimately what most doctors really want to do. It's just something that comes easy. Mm. On the other hand, there is also a lot of evidence that parents can really help their children to develop into more empathic individuals. So children of more empathic parents will develop to become more empathic. And um, like I said before, we can all very easily actually turn it on and off as well. And there's a large number of uh, strategies like uh, directing your attention one way or the other, that can allow us to really make it more of a habit to be empathic most of the time, or quite the opposite, to turn empathy off very much. And the more we do it, really, the better we get at it. That said, there are also individual differences uh, that are genetic in how easily empathy comes to us. So we know from twin studies and from genetic studies that um, people that are more similar in their genes are more similar in uh, how much empathy they will tend to display mm -hmm. in certain situations. So like pretty much everything in, the, in our brain, there's a bit of both. So we're born with a certain kind of capital for empathy, and then we can really boost this capital or kind of take away from it through the kind of caring or not so caring environment around us and our own decision to really be empathic or not. And so when you say that you can intentionally shift your focus, what would that look like in everyday life? Well, so for instance, we were speaking about meetings. A lot of people have these year yearly meetings with their, with their employees. And for instance, before I go into one of these meetings, I just take uh, five minutes for myself just to remind myself of how important this meeting is actually for, for this employee, how important feeling valued and, and loved is going to be for that person and how good it is for our relationship if, if we really listen to each other. Mm. So then by the time the person enters the room, I've tried to turn off my productivity mindset, mm -hmm. uh, which makes me aware of the fact that I have another meeting in, in one hour. And I just try to, to be in the right mindset to really be here in that moment with that person, there to listen to the person and to, to make the person uh, heard and felt. And that really will change the whole dynamic uh, of the meeting. So in my experience, all it takes really is, uh, is taking that little moment to reflect uh, a little deep breath and, um, and put your mind into listening mode. 
and um, and then your your brain knows what to do it does it automatically you you automatically become a better listener when you do that by Absolutely. telling yourself that my goal now is to focus on the other person and try to learn from the other person what they are experiencing and how i can be there for them or provide value for them in one way or another you disconnect from your own agenda and, and focus on the other person uh, which can be really hard to do i think but the way you describe it seems to be a good way of practicing it in, from day-to-day life so it would be useful then when we're in one of these negative spirals with someone we know to try to enter something positive they try to find similarities try to I don't know, create some form of happy atmosphere to to get into a positive spiral instead, because then the other person might start smiling, and then you do, and then you hopefully start laughing at some point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's really this sense of of empathic wisdom where where you start to really be sophisticated about the way that you are empathic in both ways, where you become mindful of the impact of your own state on others and where you are sensitive to the state of the other. And just like you say, also when you teach, just letting your own passion show Mm. is incredibly helpful for the audience to get excited about it as well. If you're blasé, it's, uh, it's not surprising that your audience will also disconnect. And, and I think, of course, the interactions that we have with our children, are really powerful in in showing us this kind of emotional connection stripped of a lot of of the kind of conscious control and of the absent-mindedness that we often have because we're absorbed in our thoughts. So just like you say, I think they're really amazing moment to feel just the power of this connection. So children that grow up in very unstable and, and unsafe environments with, with maybe adults that are violent or they're unstable often become hypervigilant to what is going on around them to, to recognize threats. Is that also a form of empathy or is it another type of mechanism? So I think what uh, these phenomena are interconnected, right? They're just like I said, um, you, you control every emotion that you have. Empathy is only one of them. So it's not that empathy is completely even, uh, distinct from these other mechanisms. But certainly what we do know is that people that grow up in these adverse situations can react in, in one of two ways. Some of them become really callous in the way that they try to cope with the situation is to really dial down their emotions. Mm-hmm. Some become hypervigilant and really anxious in social situations. They become hyper-responsive to, to other people's emotions. And both of these uh, are understandable. So if you are perhaps born with the ability to really turn down your empathy a lot, then becoming callous is an effective way to cope with all the misery that's around you. Mm. And people think that that is one of the pathways really to uh, psychopathy. On the other hand, then if you, if it doesn't come so easy genetically uh, for you to really downregulate these factors, then they do affect you. They do create the state of heightened arousal. 
And you then develop more in the physical avoidance and, and strategies where you withdraw from the situation or you become socially anxious as a way to avoid the stimulus rather than to downregulate the, the way that you respond to the stimulus. So when we disconnect from our own emotions, do we then become less able to empathize with others because we're less Correct. in contact so even if I can notice that you are sad, if I'm if I'm suppressing sadness in myself on a regular basis, I'm not going to feel it as much. Uh, Absolutely. So so there is uh, evidence in, uh, that comes from the group of Tanya Singer that something called alexithymia, which mm-hmm. is which is a metric of how good you are at really labeling and consciously understanding your own emotions, mm-hmm. correlates with empathy. So the better you are attuned uh, with your own emotions, the better you are to really make something out of the the information that the emotional contagion will give you. Because what you what you have to to understand is that uh, our emotions are a multi-layered process. So we have the the more physical basic um, state of agitation on the one hand and then we have a cognitive conscious layer on top which is what allows us uh, to to define this now as guilt or jealousy or envy Mm. or rage Mm. and it is this more cognitive mechanism that really attributes now the arousal that you have to to particular type of emotion that allows us to take the right decisions about what to do. Mm. So if you're aroused because you're really interested uh, in a woman, you should react very differently than if you're aroused because you're scared of someone hitting you. Mm. So just the arousal doesn't tell you what to do. But if you have this layer of understanding of why it is that you have this feeling now, what the origin of the feeling is, you can now really do something with it, use this emotion to guide your behavior in the right direction. So if these two things become disconnected because you try to ignore your own emotions, it means that you no longer develop really this ability to to recognize what you're really feeling, what the causes are and how to deal with it. And that means that if this emotion is now triggered by the state of someone else, you fail to have access to all the insights and knowledge and past memories of um, of how to best deal with it, how to what to make with it, and that then really will make your relationship with the others a lot less helpful for yourself and for the other person. Because you just generally feel bad. You just this is a negative emotion. Exactly. I don't exactly know what it is, but it doesn't feel good. And then it's easier to withdraw from it exactly. than to do something with it. Exactly. What, what would you say an emotion is? How can we differ then? How can we learn to differ between just feeling bad and saying that it's anger or it's feeling overwhelmed or it's something else? So, first of all, I must say it's not really my field of expertise, <laughs> but it's a very good question. So I'll take the opportunity to, to reflect about it a little bit. So I think um, one useful thing is to separate the, uh, what some people call the emotion from the feeling. So the feeling is this more conscious um, uh, perception of what uh, your your body currently has as an emotion. And 
the feeling, because it really happens in your cortex, so in, in the more sophisticated and verbal part of your brain as well, uh, it is a, a system that can easily analyze as well the whole complexity of the situation and combine all that information to, to really recognize, okay, now I don't feel bad just, but I actually feel jealous. Mm. Or now I don't feel just bad, but I actually feel concerned about the, the other person. Now, this passage takes time, right, to differentiate just mm. the agitation from what it is. Mm. And then the, there is evidence that uh, being surrounded by people that uh, speak about their emotions and that speak about what you feel as a child really helps you to develop that degree of sophistication. Mm. So, for instance, when, uh, when, uh, when my children have strong emotions, I really try to uh, decompose a bit with them what they're feeling, what the situation is, what to do with it. And I think it is by really being scaffolded by, by someone, an adult with more experience and a larger vocabulary that can see what the situation is, that you can be helped in starting to differentiate emotions into feelings. So, of course, if the parents don't help, then uh, your peers perhaps can help. Mm. But, of course, this is something that uh, traditionally in certain societies, uh, especially for certain genders, speaking about emotion is not exactly encouraged. Mm. And that then makes it, I think, very difficult to have a healthy development of this differentiation of emotions. So, then... I think that from biology per se, there is probably evidence that we don't just have good and bad. Amongst the bad, we probably certainly have things like rage that's different from fear and from disgust mm. and perhaps from sadness. But we're not sure that it goes much beyond that. Whereas then uh, in a in highly verbal environment, you start to really differentiate kind of an, uh, anger, from jealousy, from guilt, from concern. And that is probably something that goes beyond just our biology into something where our brain over many different situations and with the help of others starts to realize that there's something in common between all the situations where you feel something like guilt mm -hmm. that is different from the situation where you feel something like jealousy. And your brain is very good at classifying things, at seeing the chairs are chairs, even if they look very different. And it's the same for your emotions, kind of with the right experience and a bit of help. You can really start to, to classify things as being a, a, a similar configuration of situation and internal state. And then you can learn that when that comes together, you need to do this or that to, to feel better again. And that's how you then develop appropriate strategies. So what would you say would be like two things that someone could start doing today that could be helpful to learn more about this, to try to find better balance in their life? Well, I think just in uh, reserving a little bit of time to just really think about how you feel and how the relationships that are really important to you go. And then I find it very helpful 
for instance, while I'm waiting for a bus, not to take my phone out, mm. but to just figure, no, I'm going to leave it in my pocket and I'm going to think about one of those things. Or I like to go running and it's tempting to just put on a podcast and occupy your brain. But then um, for at least half of the run, I just turn off the podcast and I and I ask myself how I'm feeling actually and why it is that I'm feeling that way and whether I'm actually happy with the way that the day went or not. Mm. And so just turning off the busyness sometimes and being just a bit mindful of how you feel and how the people that you really care about are feeling and what what role you are playing and how they're feeling. It doesn't take a lot of time, and when you do that, uh, I think you go a long way mm. in uh, in just making the most out of all the skills most of us have but sometimes forget to use because we're too busy. So by gradually becoming more in tune with your own emotions and fine-tuning how you classify them and how you understand them, you automatically become more in tune with other people and then you can use that to reflect on yourself but also reflect on others as a way of growing that, that skill and also growing those relationships. So I wouldn't say that just looking into yourself will automatically make you great at looking at others as well. I think you, you have to devote a bit of your attention to both of them. Mm. I think it is important to really listen into yourself. And especially if you are feeling agitated or a bit uh, unwell, it's not a good idea to look away and just focus on the good things that happen. It is a good idea to really embrace those feelings as well and try to understand and be curious about where you think they come from. But I think you need to devote special attention to really what happens to others as well, because we, we can really shift our focus from ourselves to others. And I think an, uh, an important element of really making the most out of your empathy is really to get into that listening mode to just uh, figure that for a moment perhaps you yourself are not the most interesting thing in this room, but to figure now is the time to actually listen to someone else. Mm. And uh, it is this deliberate switch to someone else that then allows you to, to really fine-tune as well this uh, more empathic skill. This has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and for teaching us so much about emotions and mirror neurons and the brain. It's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and I will likely read your book many times over. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me and listening to me. In this episode, we've learned different important aspects of our ability to empathize. In the brain, we have certain nerve cells acting as so-called mirror neurons. This means that they map what we observe in others onto our own experience and expression of the same function, whether it be movement, sensation or emotion. This gives us the ability to not only see what others are doing or experiencing, but to feel it in ourselves. Emotional contagion is how emotions in others trigger similar emotions in ourselves. We tend to get happier when someone expresses joy and anxious when someone else is. These experiences are also colored by our own previous experiences or abilities. For example, will a person having experienced a lot of anxiety before better be able to empathize with someone else experiencing it now? A person who knows how to play the piano 
will respond to someone else playing differently than someone who doesn't know how to play. This is based on the associations your brain has built in response to your own intimate knowledge of how a piano is played and how it sounds. We do have a bias in our ability to empathize. We tend to turn our empathy up for persons we feel more similar with and turn it down for persons we feel are different than us. We also often adapt our empathy to context, tuning it down where needed to protect our own emotional state. Knowing about all of this gives us the opportunity to cultivate empathic wisdom. And this is the ability to intentionally reflect on and affect our empathy towards others. We have the choice to really try to create empathy towards others through perspective taking and active listening, something that is particularly important in leadership, relationships and parenting. Before meeting another person, Take a moment to reflect over how you wish to engage with them. Maybe try to consider their perspective on things and how they likely have mostly the same wishes and fears as yourself. Decide to practice active listening and trying to empathize. These practices will help you cultivate empathic wisdom and change your interactions with others. However, it is equally important to listen actively to yourself as well. There needs to be a balance between your focus on your own needs and experiences and those of others. If we are well in tune with our own bodies and emotions, we're also better able to understand those of others and better able to navigate them. And we need to be kind and loving to ourselves so we can create a positive experience equally for ourselves and others around us. I hope this episode was valuable to you and I truly recommend reading Christian Kaiser's book, The Empathic Brain. You can also check out the website brainobservations.com to find useful links to more information. And don't forget to subscribe. I wish you a lovely day and hope to see you next time.